Welcome back to Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least, the parts of it we've read. I'm Cameron, and with me is Michael. Hello, everybody. It's the 80s. I'm the sensitive and articulate principal who understands the hero's travails but disappears after the first act. Take that, teacher. Buh, 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 buh. Uh, ninjas. Get thrown. <laughs> hip toss, hip toss, hip toss. Crouch kick, crouch kick, crouch kick. Oh no, kick. I keep getting kicked into a giant brick wall and the bricks are being demolished behind me. Just like in the hit game Breakout. The the end. <laughs> and scene. God, that <clears throat> ruined my voice. Uh, <laughs> great you, way uh, to start a show. Yeah, great way to start the show uh, to teach for hours on end and start screaming and making noises. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know what? I actually had two bits I was going to do at the beginning here. Uh, we already did a bit, so I'll just describe them to you. Okay. Wait, so hold on. That was a third bit, and these were... No, yeah, that was an unrelated bit. Here are okay. two prepared bits okay. that I thought about. I'll just describe them rather than act them mm-hmm. out. Uh, elaborate John Wayne Howdy Pilgrim bit. Okay. And then a bit about uh, pronouncing uh, micro world like, uh, like 1980s Eastern European, like Soviets. Micro world? Micro world, yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> those those would have been the two bits. I think that's what's happening on Stranger Things now is they're like beating up David Harbour and they're like, you will tell us secrets of Micro World. <laughs> and the supposed pilgrim. <laughs> oh, I get. Uh, hey, wait, you ready for uh, some sort of secret fourth bit? OK, yeah. Billy Pilgrim's not in this book at all. <laughs> Sorry, David said now. Kurt Vonnegut's in town. <laughs> hey, David, so now you better get out of here. Kurt Vonnegut's looking for you. <laughs> uh, today we're talking about Breakout Pilgrim in the Micro World by David Sudnow. Yep. Uh, now, we both read... That this book was published in 81, 82? Uh, 82, I think. 83. Eh, I was close. I'm looking, I'm looking at it. Yeah, you know, the 80s. Uh-huh. And uh, so I have an original copy of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I when have it was original... just Pilgrim in the Micro World. Right. It was just Pilgrim in the Micro World. Uh, and I have an original copy of it someone gave me. Uh, and it's very cool. It's in my office. But for that, we didn't. I didn't read my original copy because it's precious and it's kept inside of a hermetically sealed chamber, of course, mm-hmm. along, alongside every other book I own. Mm-hmm. They each get their own in my uh, mansion full of stairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but, but we both purchased the newest, uh, issue of this book, uh, which is the boss fight books version. Yes. Uh, some people have, uh, if you're not familiar with it, boss fight books is kind of, uh, uh, publisher, uh, kind of 33 and a third for mm-hmm. video games is kind of the, the, uh, real high concept pitch. Uh, and they do books that are on single games. Um, and so, you know, you can see books by, like, uh, Earthbound, 
Bible Adventures, Baldur's Gate 2, Metal Gear Solid. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they each come in seasons, and they're kind of kick-started, or at least they have been for the past few seasons. And this is from one of those fairly recent ones. Um, And so it is the most recent issue of this book. I I guess they got the rights to it. Um, And it's the most accessible. We both got a a hard, uh, not a hard cover, but a uh, hard copy, Mm -hmm. I should say. It's a little paper, little square-ish paperback. I think I paid something like 12 bucks for mine, yep. uh, but the very accessible PDFs and things like that too. Boss fight books are pretty good about being uh, accessible and grabbable. You can get them. Um, and so, yeah, this is one of the rare things where like an academic book had an audience outside of its original academic audience and was, although it was not published with an academic press originally, I don't think, uh, but was then, uh, you know, into games culture and then has been reissued due to popular demand. And I know a little bit about the story of that, too, but maybe you want to tell us about this book, Michael? Uh, so this book, as we already said, uh, is published in 1983. And uh, the the basic summary that I can give you, uh, if you have not heard of it or read it already, is that it is about a uh, sociology professor who also happens to be, and this this will be important, but also happens to be a, a very, very good pianist, right? Uh, he discovers the Atari. And uh, he ends up buying one for himself. And uh, he, he buys the game Breakout, which is like Pong, except played against a brick wall. I'm sure we'll talk about this extensively uh, throughout the rest of the episode. But... Um, the long story short is that he kind of becomes obsessed with it. And the book is him like writing this first person account of like the, the slow drift toward like game induced mania uh, caused by this, this breakout by just this Atari thing that he has and sort of like, uh, the his experience trying to become a better player at it because he that's one of the things that he's kind of like fixating on is like how do I play kind of the the best game of breakout that I can uh, but then also thinking about like what is the uh, video game console like the Atari apparatus or like a, a also the like the arcade cabinet right um, there's a way in in which uh for sud now actually it's the arcade cabinet not the home console that's that's the uh, real point of focus here um what does it mean or like what is going to happen with these like machines right uh these game machines in constant use or in kind of like people's everyday lives so on the one hand this book is incredibly fascinating because it reminds me of everything that we've read thus far for this show. The thing that it reminds me the most of is Buckles's interactive fiction. Hmm. Um, not just because uh, they 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 come at about the same time, but because uh, they both deal with kind of um, this aspect of games and games history that I think uh, maybe falls out of the picture for whatever reason in, in like 90s and upwards uh, game study, uh, which is like just the strange things that people thought about games and like what games might do or could do or how they operated before games were kind of like part of the fabric of everyday lived existence. Right. I think of like, right. uh, The reason it reminds me of that is that like buckles talks about, um, uh, people playing, uh, adventure and like, 
sure that there's some sort of like morality system watching them. And so they're trying to play as nice as possible or like people who just like have no real concept of like what a goal in a game is. And so there's that person that Buckles talks about who's like prime uh, obsession is like getting a dwarf into a birdcage, which just can't happen. Like, that's not a I thing. will reason with the dwarf. <laughs> right. It's, it's just not a thing that will happen in the game. But this person spends a long time trying to get it to happen. Uh, uh, Sud now kind of has these moments like that where he is just like, like, uh, uh, and he has the, this is what's fascinating about it, right? Is that he has these like ideas about what a, what a game is or what a video game is or what it can do or what it can be. And then he finds out that he's wrong. And that the game is something else. And so then he like moves forward with kind of this like new picture of it, right? Moving from kind of like a game to uh, I think how his art goes is like game to kind of like a, a just a, a a machine, right? Just a program to be mastered and then realizing that that's not quite as simple as, as uh, it is even then, right? And so it's very, very short, uh, but feels very long because it is covering a lot of ground, I feel like, emotionally. Uh, it's a very, very fascinating and unusual book. Yes, uh, th- this is such an odd book to me because uh, for the exact reasons you just said, it is conceptually fascinating and absolute torture to read. Yeah, because a huge chunk of this book, I'm talking 40 percent of the page count. Is someone describing playing Breakout, mm-hmm. which is valuable, like extremely valuable, right? Like it is, it is actually very valuable, not for the description necessarily, because we could play Breakout, but because the the description allows you to work backward to his assumptions, and he's talking through those assumptions too, right? He's like, I, here's why I'm doing because there's one section right where he's talking about playing Breakout, and is like, if I put a piece of tape in the middle of the screen and focus on it, I realize that I can play with only my peripheral vision. And if I can play with only my peripheral vision, I can see the whole screen at one time. Mm-hmm. You know, And that's like, holy shit. You know, like, that's actually really notable. Of course we look with our whole field of vision, right? Like, this is a basic claim of any kind of visual study. Uh, you know, there are focus points and there are techniques of capture that encourage your eyes to look at certain things and not others. And that's in classic cinema. That's in uh, Renaissance um, <laughs> architectural drawing, right? That's perspective yeah. and, and the use of uh, horizon lines and things like that. But that's, uh, you know, looking for the white streaks that tell you where to climb in Tomb Raider, right? Like, mm-hmm. that, these are mechanisms. And so David Sundow is giving you this kind of snapshot of his experience of kind of self-discovering that in a moment, right? So it's really valuable, I think, or it feels really valuable to me to be like, oh, this is someone talking you through and working you through every little piece of the experience of play, Right. Another word for that might be phenomenology, right? He's doing this kind of auto description of his phenomenological experience of the game, although he does have some kind of goals and aims. You know, he's working toward trying to do something. Mm -hmm. So conceptually, very cool. Mm -hmm. Practically, good God, it's boring. (laughs) Like, oh my God, it's boring. Yeah, this book is Um, not terribly long and it could be maybe half as long as it is. Yeah, yeah. But but you would lose some of that, like, I think, good gooditude, you know, so mm-hmm. um, I, I'm not mad about it. I'm not mad we read it. But it, like, I think I think reading a book, the one of the, the most important things when we're talking about uh, just a book that is written is being emotionally honest with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And to be emotionally honest 
I, reading this book, I find it very belaboring. And I've found that every single time um, mm-hmm. because, you know, partially what, what's so fun about reading this book is that it opens with a foreword from, uh, 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 gosh, I'm, I'm blanking. Gabe Durham. Boss, yeah, Gabe Durham, uh, the, I think, publisher for Boss Fight Books. I, I forget exactly uh, how Durham describes uh, their position. But um, it describes, this is the beginning. This is the very beginning of the book. A few years ago, at an indie games festival, I got coffee with the Australian game scholar and writer, Brendan Keogh, who at the time was probably best known for his book, Killing is Harmless, a scene-by-scene exploration of the military shooter, Spec Ops the Line. Um, you know, Brendan's a good friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't like Killing is Harmless all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but it was part of this really great moment of games criticism, impossible to imagine where we are today without it. Hugely important. Um, and a fun book to read. Like I, you know, I, I didn't care for it at the time. And I, I thought that what Brendan was doing was slightly mm, different to what I would want to be doing. Um, and so we took different pathways and did that. But if you haven't read killing us harmless or you're not aware of it, you should check it out. Like it's, it's, uh, kind of narrative critical to understand how we got to the place of how we talk about games, both academically and non-academically today. Uh, this came up in Soraya Murray's book, uh, uh, spec ops line comes up there. And then Brendan's book, I think showed up in the discussion for that a little bit. Um, and so, uh, anyway, scene by scene exploration, blah, blah, blah. Durham, uh, 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 Continues. I mentioned that I'd been glad to see his meditation on a single video game come out in a public enthusi- uh, out to public enthusiasm, just as I was launching a press for this very kind of book. You got there before anybody, I said. Not quite anybody, he said. Have you heard of Pilgrim in the Microworld? And so, Brendan, at this moment, uh, I think I was, what, 2013, 2012, or something like that? Brendan, at that moment, had been evangelizing Pilgrim in the Microworld, like as long as I'd known Brendan. um and i don't know exactly when he discovered it but certainly that like i associate my earliest memories of brendan talking to brendan doing criticism around brendan whatever with discussing this book and for brendan who eventually ended up writing a play of bodies which we haven't done on the show but probably should at some point um you know i think it really heavily informed uh how brendan got there because this is a book that is at least partially about the embodied experience of gameplay, which is kind of what I was talking about before. It's why I use the word phenomenology, right? Uh, this kind of thick description of what it means to play and what it means to do the thing. Yes. Good old Berniquio. That's right. <laughs> our, our good friend Berniquio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but but anyway, so so Brendan ends up writing this book that's about kind of like, what is it to play and what is it to be uh, within a particular kind of game system? And Back then, when Brendan was evangelizing this book so much, I had gotten a copy of the original hardcover from someone as um, part of like a big box of books that I had purchased from them when they were kind of done with game studies. Or actually, I think they might have given them to me. I think I just paid shipping. But And I read it then, and I probably got 70% of the way through it and, and dropped it. Uh, I don't think I ever actually <laughs> completed it. For some of the reasons that we're talking about here, but also at that time, I was particularly not interested in these issues. Like... Um, I'm really fascinated and was, you know, I wrote my master's thesis around some of this stuff, but I'm fascinated by the act of play and like what people do when they play. But in some level, I'm just infected by anti-humanism, right? Like for me, the, the interesting part of that is how, uh, play is constrained in all of these different ways and how it is disciplined and how it's formed and how other systems that are beyond us subjectivate us, right? You know, I write about that kind of extensively in um, The World is Born from Zero. 
And so, you know, I, I read this book and I was reading it within the lens that, that Brendan was really evangelizing it through. Uh, and so I was like, oh, this is really cool, but not what I'm into. Um, you know, interesting book, but not what I'm concerned with. And so I kind of dropped it and always had a kind of impression about it in my head that it was that kind of thing. And so therefore I wasn't interested in it so much until we decided to do it for the show. And I think it's actually got a lot of other stuff going on that I had maybe not seen or had not been um, you know, uh, prep to look for, you know, uh, you got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You, you mm-hmm. think uh, you, you, someone tells you to look for phenomenology and you start seeing thick description everywhere. Um, and I think this has actually got a lot of other stuff going on, particularly about that kind of question of discipline and how we play and why we play, um, that puts some good pressure, I think on some of the other stuff that we've talked about on game study, study buddies in the past. So, um, I don't know what's your, what's your history with this book, Michael? Have you read this before? Are you familiar with it? Nope. This is my first time reading it. I've, I've heard of it of course. Um, but, uh, to be quite frank, I did not know, uh, if there was enough in a game of breakout to get a whole book out of it. And having read it, I'm, I'm pretty sure there wasn't, but, uh, (laughs) Uh, sort of along with you, like, I do think that there are core ideas here that are really, really interesting, right? I think this book is in some ways um, just kind of a victim of, of history in the way that so much of what it like, maybe, you know, half its page count or something uh, goes to describing uh, with kind of breathless novelty things about games that end up being very obvious when games have like uh, uh, dispersed throughout the culture, right? Um, it, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, like, just to uh, I don't even really know how to quite like handle this because there's not so much an argument as there is like a series of kind of approaches to breakout or kind of associated issues. Uh, But like, uh, let me double check here. This is there are 10 chapters and it is not until chapter eight that, for instance, now stops hitting the reset button every time the game of uh, breakout doesn't go in quite the perfect way that he wants it to. Like, that's that's what you need to know is that he is like obsessively playing this game. And the second it goes off course, he's like hitting the reset button on the machine. And it is not until eight chapters in that uh, he sort of realizes like, oh, you can just keep playing these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't have to be optimal. You can just play the game. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, so, yeah, his position he starts from is quite different from, from I think, 99% of game players even at the time. Yeah, it, it's it's very odd. Uh, uh, but, you know, the, the, the ways that... So I, I said this in my, like, sort of summary at the beginning. Uh, the ways that his history as like someone who works with music and plays the piano, the way that that comes to bear here is really interesting to me um, because uh, he, the other thing about Sud now that I guess is important to mention is that he ends up developing his own method for piano instruction that is called the Sud now method. And he was like, uh, uh, it seems like toward the end of his life, like that was his primary business was like operating a website where he taught people how to play piano through the Sud now method. Uh, so his way of understanding, like the machine, right? The video game console, the arcade cabinet, uh, is bound up in the ways that, uh, being taught to play piano teaches you to think about things that you do with your hands. 
Uh, and that's really interesting, right? That's a really interesting perspective to have on like video games and to like the way that it br- for him, it like brings to uh, the fore like the controller and things like that. Again, very, very interesting. And then also we get to a point where he is like playing with the controller in his mouth <laughs> as like part of his grand experiment to see like what is the maximal way to play Breakout. Yeah, he uh, he starts getting wild because he's experimental with it, right? Like, he's willing to see what happens. And it's because his primary fixation for so much of this book, and, which is kind of told chronologically, you know, like, it's mm-hmm. about his journey through Experience and Breakout, which he didn't really even want to play to begin with. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but uh, so, so much of it is about technique. Mm-hmm. You know, it is about the development of technique. And a word that never shows up here, but which is, I think, super important. It's a word that I've used many different times in relationship to games across the show and in my own writing, um, which is discipline, mm-hmm. right? It's the the imposition of an externalized system with some uh, some of its own goals on the human body. You know, it's in some ways what's missing from this book, which would be fascinating to think about, is the Foucauldian uh, docile bodies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, thesis. The idea that there's a moment uh, in... Um, uh, kind of organizational history, right? And Foucault's only interested in Europe, and so this is a very kind of uh, specific history of a very specific set of groups of people. Um, but, you know, what happens when a system realizes that it can plug and play any kind of operation into it as long as you have a human body with certain forms and functions to it? And that's kind of how Sudden Al sees himself, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Breakout is its own machine, and if he comports himself perfectly to it, he's going to get the outcome he wants, which is to clear a screen of Breakout as quickly as possible. That's all the guy wants to do. And it's hard. Hey. Hey. Hi. We, uh, you know, I just said like a big epic thing. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. An epic thing about docile bodies, I think. mm -hmm. But the the notable thing about that is that that happened yesterday. What? We had to take the in in a in a rare podcast production snafu. God struck down the internet for the entire <laughs> eastern seaboard. <laughs> there there was a there was a Poseidon submarine and it and it was shooting all of its uh, trident. Uh-huh. Uh, explodos, whatever those are called. Trident right, explodos. No, I believe that's the technical term. Right, right at the big, the, the big cable, the hashtag big cable that lives under mm-hmm. the Atlantic seaboard and destroyed mm-hmm. the internet. Mm-hmm. So we had to come back twenty four hours later to finish the episode. Mm-hmm. Yep, we're talking about. Uh, we're still talking about Pilgrim in the Micro World. Mm-hmm. And now I think we are uh, we're ready to talk about the chapters. Although I'm not sure that we talked a lot about ethno methodology. Did you do you have anything you want to say about ethno methodology? Uh, not specifically, other than um, well, the the thing to compare it to. Uh, so ethno methodology is the methodology of this book. That's one thing to say. Uh, the other thing to say is that it is extremely, uh, similar in a lot of ways to what was going on in Seth Giddings's book that we did. Um, mm-hmm. the, the precise title of which I cannot remember now, uh, game Worlds. game worlds. Yes. I, I, I make the Lego racers go that see, I remember that. And I remember <laughs> it's about like children's play, but the game world's title is the thing that evaporates. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, there's that. Um, I guess the other part of it that's interesting or that like 
jumped out at me is that like I have been doing very similar work to this uh, with the Homestuck show and the Homestuck project, because essentially what ethno methodology is uh, in this instance, right in Sudnow's instance, uh, is uh, using kind of these these sociological techniques that he is trained in in order to think about the things that he specifically is doing or is like involved in and sort of um, how those fit within like broader cultural currents and things like that. The other notable thing about it, I guess, is that it was uh, the, the term and the method were devised by none other than Garfinkel himself. Garfinkel? Yes, the uh, a returning person? character from the previous episode. Right. Who, who, the one who did all the rude stuff? Yeah. It, like, this is uh, going to the department store and bartering, right? Right. Or yeah. haggling. Uh huh. Or like, just like standing too close to people when they, when you're speaking with them. And then when they move away, like taking another step forward to invade their like slight bubble of space again. That's uh, right. Apparently, that was also ethno methodology. Yeah, of course. <laughs> what else would it be? Uh, well, that's that's fascinating. Uh, but yeah, so Sudnow does that and ends up at what? UC Irvine? Yeah, he's at UC Irvine, and I believe that's also where Garfinkel is. And like, it's not just like accidental, right? Like he and Garfinkel know each other. Uh, Garfinkel, I think, is uh, acknowledged in Sudnow's uh, little intro as someone who like looked at the manuscript or talked over the project with him, for instance. Wow. Powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's the whole deal is kind of uh, working through the, I don't know, methods of the self, some sort of technique of the self. Mm-hmm. Mm. Who, who could imagine uh, that, that's showing up here? Uh, and as you said a little bit earlier, there are 10 chapters and they kind of each move through different pieces. Although I think as the book goes on, it gets a little less clear, like what the dividing pieces are here you know what mm -hmm. i mean like they they seem to be coherent and conceptual for the most part i think we'll summarize these and we'll talk a little bit about like what they do for us and what they don't do and the pieces we find interesting but um uh this is not the kind of book where like each chapter has its own argument you know that mm -hmm. that's not what's happening here this is more written as a thing to read through and to kind of understand as a big argument rather than say like a big thesis that's supported with lots of different case studies from lots of different places. Mm -hmm. um, I guess another thing that's maybe worth talking about really briefly at the beginning is the, the classed nature of this thing. Yeah. Um, in that, uh, you know, the inciting incident as it were of, of the, uh, of the whole book is like, David Sudnow went to a dinner party. People would normally play jazz standards and sing. Yes, yes, as we all do at dinner parties, of course. Right? Someone was playing Missile Command. <laughs> Ugh. The, the youth these days. And yet, Missile Command is fun. So, you know, there's this kind of like from on high, you know what I mean? Like coming down from the mountain of knowledge, uh, you mm -hmm. know, uh, repelling from the ivory tower, uh, the intellectual deigns to come down to the working classes, you know, garbage hobbies, and then determines how they work. And to be clear, I don't think that's the intent here. Like, I think that the, like what sudden I was actually after is like, Hey, I played some, I played this thing and here's what I think about it. Mm -hmm. But I think that you could, you, if one were uncharitable, you could read that into it. And I, and I gotta be honest, like reading, I think chapter two is where that comes up. Uh, reading that, I was like, ah, I don't know about this. You know, like I started getting my hackles up a little bit where it's like, is that where this book is going? You know, is it going mm -hmm. to, uh, oh, the, 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 uh, maneuverable body of the poor, 
mm-hmm. you know, the hoi polloi mm-hmm. and their pleasures. And I, I mean, we got to be honest, there's a little bit of that in here, right? There's a little, a little bit, bit of like, uh, you know, wh- why do this when you could be playing piano? We mm-hmm. could be doing Bach right now, bro. Uh, <laughs> there's a little bit of that in there, but not, that, but that's not where the, the majority of the piece comes from. So now it's just, I think, marking his location. And also, I think probably worth thinking about or at least kind of considering big, broad framework, the kind of racial component to this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like no social identity never emerges into this book in any kind of way. And so this is a book about the phenomenology of play, right? Mm-hmm. But that like in phenomenology, in the study of phenomenology, right? Or I mean, I guess there's no such thing as the study of phenomenology in doing the thing that is phenomenology. Uh, you know, a, a, a term that's come up on the show before is bracketing, right? So you set things off, you know, in terms of like you take qualities or ideas or things you note and you bracket them and you remove them from uh, analysis to then kind of get at the deeper fundament. And one could say basically everything about identity is bracketed here to give us a general phenomenology of play. And when you start trying to bracket off things like class, race, gender, etc., even though gender does show up in this book in a <laughs> you know very normative way. Um, when you start doing that, you start losing, I think, some of the granularity of the reality of play, and you start creating a kind of false universal, and it's a false universal that reproduces David Sudnow's social position, and which which doesn't mean we have to throw the book out, right? But it does mean you have to read it with that in mind, that this thing's got some brackets, or it's got some kind of limits to it about what it can be universalized to say um Mm -hmm. and then you can go from there right uh you know he discovers all of this kind of stuff initially in an arcade Mm -hmm. and arcades are raced classed gendered all these different things in different ways but that never enters the analysis right it turns into play as a thing that is kind of asocial prior to the social whatever uh and it gets highly intensely individualized here and we can totally still engage with the book, you know, and I mean, we like in terms of like people in the world, right? We can read the book. We can we can talk about it. We can get really interesting theoretical and practical information from it. But I don't think you can pretend as if all those other things don't matter. It, I think if you're bringing this into your work, if you're considering what Sudnow is doing, you need to actually think about these other components and how they might have or might not have impacted the conclusions that Sudnow gets to. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's kind of like when I finished the book, I was like, oh yeah, th- this is maybe, you know, it not going all the way where we might want to want it to. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I feel you there. Uh, re the end, uh, right. one minor correction. Speaking of, uh, you oh, know, I'm so the, sorry. The, the classed nature of, of this thing, mm-hmm. uh, his personal friend Garfinkel was actually at UCLA. I was just double checking. Oh. Um, so he was at UC Irvine, Garfinkel was at UCLA, and the fact that he's like bebopping around California having chats with his professor friends, again, like it it, it tells you something about uh, where Sudnow is coming from and kind of where he operates, uh, and that has, in some ways, a lot of advantages for him. Uh, we'll talk about that later on when he, he gets his uh, tour of the Atari headquarters or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and then hey as, now, it, I love to bebop with my professor friends. <laughs> And then, yeah, uh, has some other things where it's a a baffling just kind of things that he doesn't consider or like doesn't really notice or doesn't think Mm -hmm. are worth talking about. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think that's a big thing, right, is that when you're talking about the when when experience drives the the argument and that's what's happening in this book, right? Like Mm -hmm. it is about elaborating experience. 
and and working through it and contextualizing it and classifying it and all these kinds of things. When experience drives the object, you have to think about what are the containers or what are the um, abstractions, right, that put pressure on that experience or produce particular forms of experience. And there's just not a book that's interested in doing that. Whatever, that's okay. But I hard to engage with this book, hard to cite it, hard to think through it without maybe putting making those brackets clearer, um, you know, and ma- making those maybe shortcomings or insufficiencies clear before you work into the analysis itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so chapter one is called memory. And, uh, this is literally just all about Sud now going into an arcade to get his son and seeing his son playing missile command and becoming, uh, not exactly fascinated, but intrigued by video games. Uh, and Missile Command, if you're not familiar, is a game about trying to avert a nuclear Armageddon. So this sits a little uneasy with him as well. He's like, what is what is going on here? Like, what is like, why are kids playing this? Uh, I love nuclear Armageddon. <laughs> I yearn for nuclear Armageddon. I yearn for the, the glow of the rad. Dad, it's 1982, and we long for nuclear Armageddon. Uh, I think maybe the the most interesting thing about this chapter for me is that uh, when he's trying to describe what an arcade is like, the interior of, arca- of an arcade, what it looks like, and sort of how it feels like seeing all these people on these machines, uh, the place he immediately goes is he's like, oh, this is like a casino. Right. Right. Uh, it, it, full of hooligans. Mm-hmm. Uh, which he he loves talking about too, but yeah, I mean, he immediately uh, understands the arcade for what it is, which is I think really clarifying and good. Uh-huh. You know, he's like, yeah, you bring people in here with these really exciting things, and you put near the door the most family friendly stuff, and deep on the inside are the more uh, addictive and horrifying things like Missile Command, mm-hmm. and it just exists to eat your money and to provide a cover for people to do goofery. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like, yeah, there you go. Like you, you figured it out. It is that operation. Uh, you know, we it, 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 in the game industries broadly, right? We have spent decades creating this hagiography of the arcade that dodges the reality of it is a money extraction mechanism, mm-hmm. <laughs> much like the casino. Uh, which you know, shout out to David Sudnow, he got it. Yeah. Uh, uh, chapter two then is like this sort of fortuitous re-encounter with Missile Command. You already talked about it. This is the story of being at a party with, and this is his specific phrase, uh, other, a bunch of other quote, Berkeley intellectuals, uh, and they're standing about the, the piano, uh, getting ready to play their jazz standards, uh, the thing that I love about this is that this is the scene from The Exorcist, right? Right? Where they're having the party and then Reagan comes downstairs and she's Mommy, like, I want to play Missile Command. <laughs> right. It's it's that thing uh, because they're all getting ready to like, you know, sing their jazz standards. But then they hear a, a, a noise from another room and it turns out a couple of the other guys have like booted up the kids Atari and they're playing Missile Command. Uh, and then he kind of gets pulled into that. He he becomes kind of fascinated by it and sort of like in this social situation, right? Well, more uh, specifically, just... he gets shit-faced that night and ends up <laughs> yeah. staying to like 3 a.m. Yeah. drinking a case of beer with this dude and playing Missile Command and like specifically stays so long that everyone else leaves. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's just in it. <laughs> Uh, the other important thing in this chapter is uh, it, opposed to the arcade, this is his first time... I don't think seeing, but at least like handling an Atari console. And so his like uh, 
pianist instincts kick in and he starts talking about uh, how much this thing that you hold in your hands and use to manipulate information on a screen reminds him of, uh, in some ways, a piano and in other ways, very much not. Right. He says, quote, before the piano was the quintessential human instrument. And that's the end of the quote. But the implication being right now, it's whatever this weird computer apparatus is. And that's this mm-hmm. was interesting to me because it also evoked uh, something else I think we've read for this show. Something claimed at one point that, like, before the computer was invented, the most complex machine that humanity had devised was, like, the pipe organ or something. Do you remember this? Uh, was that in Well Met? That might have... No, no, it was longer ago than that. I don't know. Yeah, anyway... We've read a lot of books. We've read, like, 60 (laughs) books for the show, so it's it's hard to remember exactly where every specific... But you're you're right. I have... We have read that argument probably in the last year. I just can't Mm -hmm. place it. Myself. Yeah. So it's just like, oh, okay, piano's coming up again. That's something. So, you know, things with keys, keyboards. Hmm. Well, the yeah, yeah, that whole thing here, right? So kind of halfway through, he's trying to halfway through this chapter, he's trying to figure out like what's going on here? You know, like when, mm-hmm. when one plays a game and one like interfaces, I mean the chapter's called interface, right? Wait, mm-hmm. when one interfaces with the machine, what's happening? It, mm-hmm. And it's a fascinating, you know, kind of exegesis of the moment that a human being begins to interact with this uh, uh, compositional object on the other side, where together the two of you in concert do something. That's something I've written about, uh, you know, before. Something Brendan Kyo has written about. Seth Giddings, you mentioned before. Lots of people have written about this kind of stuff. And then there is, of course, the long history of uh, feminist materialist work, Donna Haraway, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that takes that as its like primary, you know, uh, inflection point from the seventies. But, uh, and then lots of other people, Tom Apperley in game studies, uh, lots of people have written about it, but it, it, the way that he does it here is actually quite interesting. This is on page 18, 19, 20 for me. And I'll read some little selections here. Right. Um, uh, He's talking about the act of playing the game. Most sedentary, you say, hardly an arena for vigorous action, awfully cold and calculating the terrain for human involvement reduced to a several acre or from a several acre plot to the micro world of a TV tube and the calibrating motions of two or three digits. The farmer who once gazed and plowed toward an endless horizon now sits on his can in an office scanning a nine inch video display of his inventory, seedling growth rates, soil composition, market prices and Pac-Man. So Sud now here is making an argument that, you know, um, that labor has moved from its traditional forms to what, you know, some people would call cognitive labor, right? The, mm-hmm. the idea that even our most physically standard jobs in terms of things that human beings have done for hundreds or thousands of years are now passing through circuits of communication technology that no matter what you have to master, you know, so think about uh, the farmers in France using Minitel, that kind of stuff, um, uh, you know, think about uh, servers and bars who have to become really efficient at using the little touchscreen order placement machine uh, mm-hmm. in order to do their job that is essentially moving drinks back and forth or whatever, right? All of our jobs, no matter how standard and physical they are, still re- are modulated uh, by this cognitive uh, effort we have to go through in order to play with a machine. Skipping a bunch of other stuff, uh, he says, Human history was cultivated through speech and the motion of fingers, one could say, the tiniest, not biggest actions. After all, take away all the carved, painted, and inscribed meanings and thoughts and giving rise to its symbolic significance as a shape. And what's the Great Pyramid alongside Beethoven's Fifth or something like this? And you give some images. Um, It's just labor. So he's basically saying Mm -hmm. all of human history is angled toward manipulation, 
you know, this kind of the, using fingers on a keyboard, right? Uh, that that is reduced to labor. You know, this kind of uh, uh, even though they feel different, they look different. The outputs are different. There is a modulation in the labor form that is changing. Um, weirdly enough, this does comport with Marx. If you were curious about that, one could read these two things in tandem with one another. So then he says this. I'm working all the way to saying this. Now the computer, our organically perfect tool, seated upright on behinds, just made for that, our hands dangled near the lap at their most relaxed point of balance, while these fingers, capable of such marvelous interdigitation, have a territory for action whose potentials and richness are electronically enhanced beyond the wildest dream. And the eyes are freed from hand, for hand guidance work, uh, uh, from hand guidance work, free to witness and participate in the spectacle from above. Before the piano was the quintessential human instrument, of all things exterior to the body, in its every detail, it most enables our digital capacities to sequence delicate actions. Pushing the hand to its anatomical limit, it forces the development of strength and, and independence of movement for fourth and fifth fingers for no other tool or task so deeply needed. This piano invites hands to fully live up to the huge amount of brain matter with which they participate, more there for them than any other body part. At this genetically predestined instrument, we thoroughly encircle ourselves with the finest capabilities of the organ. So basically he's saying, and look, we got again, we got to put some brackets around this, right? But mm -hmm. the, the artful argument here is that uh, human beings are moving towards, you know, as a species, our labor efforts have moved toward a place where we can do the most highly complex things with the most minimal of effort, mm -hmm. you know? with the manipulation of our mind and the manipulation of our digits. And that used to be the piano was the apex of that. And now we are at the computer, a thing that can literally produce anything and golly gee whiz. And he's playing breakout <laughs> that way. <laughs> missile command. Golly gee whiz. When you know, we're in the middle of a massive discursive transformation, like in our current society and in, in this moment in 2023 around AI, right. And around, uh, large language models and around AI image generation and things like that. And the primary rhetorical device for understanding that, right? Whether you like it or hate it, we have to acknowledge that this is happening is look what you can do with the touch of your fingers, right? Like mm -hmm. look what a prompt or look what a artfully written descriptor using a bunch of different art station names, right? Look what it can make with the smallest amount of effort. There is a way that Sudnow gets at the root of the rhetorical and ideological, uh, you know, AI defenders maneuver 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Which is that we were we were just uh, uh, waiting for the advent of the labor machine. Right. The, the right. labor machine just had to get better. Right. We, we mm -hmm. had to create computers uh, that would allow us to do the most labor with the least amount of work and the most kind of uh, cognitive manipulation. As opposed to, mm -hmm. so fascinating to me. Really, really interesting piece of the book. Uh, then the next chapter is called Eyeball. And this is when the, the real star of the show enters. Because uh, Suddenow's got the bug. He's He's been bit. He's, mm -hmm. he's infected. He needs the bug. The bug got him. Yeah, he's become a gamer. <laughs> uh, so he goes out to buy an Atari. But he cannot find uh, any... Ataris that are coming with and or copies of Missile Command. Uh, and so he like asks for advice from the per person he's purchasing from and they recommend he purchase Breakout uh, as, a, as a good game. Uh, they describe it and uh, uh, he takes it home and he is 
uh, shocked by it. Like, I mean, you know, uh, we talked in uh, uh, what you would have listened to just a couple minutes ago, but yesterday for us, how part of this book is about like the experience of a person being baffled by a thing that is like actually fairly commonplace to us. Yeah. So it's things like, you know, just the the there's a special controller that comes with breakout, for instance, uh, that isn't the one that you use in missile command. Uh, the breakout controller has like a little dial that you wheel in the center. Uh, but then he's like messing with the game uh, and he is, you know, uh, shocked when he discovers that the little ball that you're ponging off your paddle, um, it doesn't move like a ball in the real world would, right? You know, uh, uh, Wonder of Wonders, this Atari game is not like modeling real world physics. Uh, there's actually like a, a kind of like a, a sequence or something to it, right? It's like every so many bounces, it like goes off center or something. Um, and so you just get an entire chapter of him like poking at this game and figuring out all of the ways in which uh, it is stitched together or like, you know, just the way the object is itself and the way that it works. Uh, and he he thinks, right, he starts out playing and he thinks like, okay, so what I got to do here, right, is I just got to keep my eye on the ball. I just got to watch this thing and I got to hit it into that brick wall and I got to make the bricks disappear. Uh, but he finds as he plays that he starts like getting into rhythms, right? He, he sort of stops like paying attention to the screen and like watching the ball specifically. He starts instead like uh, uh, like tapping his foot and then like moving with the rhythm and, and things like that. The rhythm of the night. Mm hmm. Yes. Oh, oh, oh. oh yeah. Uh, I got I got two little pieces of information for you here. Okay, or actually maybe three. Uh, right. Just to clarify, because as you said, you just said something that's very apparent to us as people who have played with Ataris. Uh huh. Uh, but uh, and you use some terminology that but but that might not be familiar to everyone who's involved. So, uh, first piece of information, I was googling. You know what controller does Missile Command use? And as far as I could tell, Missile Command. Yeah, you're exactly right. It uses the joystick controller. Okay, which which is like, you know, the standard think, uh, you know, Atari controller got a little box, got a big stick that comes out of it. That kind of thing. Got one button for your left thumb, that kind of deal. And as you were talking about, I, yeah, I was I was unclear on this, but uh, yeah, presumably breakout comes with the mm -hmm. paddle controller. It seems uh, which. To. Yeah. Which, as you said, right, is a it's kind of like a longer rectangle with a big disc at the top of it. And when you turn that disc left or right, that that puts a move command left and right. And so um, it's it's uh, a little more it's kind of like the facsimile of a, what would be like a trackball for centipede or something like that in the arcade. Um, and so you're able to get these left and right motions really kind of beautifully. So that's that's like notable is that uh, the way that he engages with this thing and he uses the word paddle all the time, right, as if like we all know what that means. Um, but it has a really particular image and usage to it. So those are the two, first two pieces of information. Mm -hmm. Third piece of information. The AARP's website has Atari Missile Command on it. You can play online. The AARP? Yes. It has. If you go to the AARP's website, there is a sub-website called Games. Uh -huh. On Games' website, you can play Mejong, Word and Trivia, Atari, and Retro. Atari and Retro has Asteroids, Breakout, Centipede, Missile Command, and Pong, and also Snake in Throwback Thursday Crossword. Wow. Isn't that, 
Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's <laughs> some of the incredible benefits of an AARP membership. Well, here's the deal. You can play Asteroids for free. Wow. I'm wow. playing that bad boy right now. It's got the, it's official. I got the official Atari logo going on here. And, you know, and like, this is good. I mean, ARP is not for like the extremely elderly or anything like that. But one can imagine a universe, and I'm sure this has happened, where like older people might be Googling around to play the Asteroids game of their youth, right? That they might have played in their 20s or 30s. And they end up on like a bad website that seals their identity. Mm-hmm. And so I like that they're doing this, but let me let me say one more thing. It's going to blow your mind here. Okay. Asteroids, Centipede, Missile Commander, free. Breakout and Ponger members only. Ooh, that's fascinating. You got to be an AARP member to play Breakout officially on the internet. <laughs> Isn't that fun? That And it's part of their thing. It says on the sidebar, AARP membership. It's like telling yeah. you your benefits. Uh-huh. Play members-only games like Breakout and Pong. Yep. 50% more points toward ARP rewards. Free <laughs> subscription to the magazine. Isn't that fun? It's so much fun. Damn, there's a lot of free Mahjong. <laughs> Neat. Yep. What were we talking about? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Maybe the next chapter? Cathexis. Cathexis. Yeah, so uh, this is the chapter where you can kind of really feel... I mean, so first of all, I guess Sudnow has technically already gone off the deep end, right? Like, he he is truly, <laughs> like, what, what I have given you, listener, mm-hmm. if you haven't read this book, is what you get. It's not like he sits down and, like, writes out this, like, long thought process by which he decides to buy the Atari and, like, embark upon this kind of journey. Uh, he just kind of, like, does it. And is doing it because he can do it because he wants to do it and is just like moving full force into it. So here in Cathexis, uh, this is uh, where he becomes uh, fixated on the idea of a theoretically perfect game of breakout that he supposes can exist. Uh, yeah. Hey, uh, hey, psychoanalysis, Michael. Yeah. What's Cathexis mean? <laughs> Uh, well, he actually explains it, doesn't he? I don't know. I don't remember if he does or not. Actually, no, he doesn't because he what he does is he like walks through like the he like walks through a huge example. And then he's like at the end, he's like, is this Cathexis? And that's just where he stops. Yeah, that's all right. I remember the word showed up, but I don't think he has like a definition. Yeah. Um, so Cathexis uh, in psychoanalysis is like the um, uh capture or the fixation of like mental energy on a particular like thing uh to an unhealthy degree usually um usually it's it's uh like things can become cathected i guess in ways that are not unhealthy but because of the way psychoanalysis works uh uh sort of the pathologizing nature of of the endeavor uh freud is often talking about like uh sort of the the inappropriate cathexis right uh uh, attention caught or focused on memories, events, people, personalities, fantasies that uh, should not be focused on to the degree that they are. Yeah. Yeah. And you can get like cathected into all kinds of stuff. Right. You know, that, that's actually that that's my favorite form of the word cathected. Mm hmm. It's like, it's like uh, the aliens came down and started cathecting us one by one. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, you can, uh, overly fixate on a particular person and you can like experience cathexis with your therapist, which is apparently, you know, it can become a real problem. And Mm -hmm. so it's just this like massive overinvestment. And so like that word is being used in a very weighted weight here, right? It's like an unhealthy to some degree, 
investment in the game itself. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's exactly what's happening with Sud now, right? And and notably, right, this is the this is the stage he is setting, right? This is all kind of rhetorical uh flavoring uh for him to be talking about uh like his his idea that what if you haven't again played Breakout, I don't know if yesterday I actually like walked through what this game looks like, or I like I think I gave it in snapshot. Uh but what you are is you're a little pong paddle. And you have a ball and you knock the ball up into a, a wall of bricks. And when the ball hits those bricks, they disappear. And so you uh, you skitter back and forth along the bottom of the screen, trying to hit that ball back and knock out all the bricks. And the idea is, you know, you clear the screen and then that's the victory condition. And so sudden now kind of uh, from first principles, like by seeing the game in action uh, becomes uh, the word that I keep coming back to is like fixated because that is really what it is like is like uh, uh, fix it. He, he looks at that and he's like, all right, so it is theoretically possible to start this game on on your first ball, ping pong it back and forth and clear <laughs> out that entire screen. Yeah. How do I do that? <laughs> Like, that is where he starts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it basically, it, it's so funny to me that that is, like, the position of, like, all right, I guess I'm playing the perfect game of Breakout, which is, like, not... I, what I like about that, right, is that our fixation currently in video games, right, and has been for, for as long as I've been alive, is, like, video games are places where one can experiment. Video games are places where trial and error determines the whole mechanism. Video games are places where failing is actually fun, right? Like, watching little Mario fall down in that hole is fun. Mm -hmm. You know, right, especially if he, like, jumps off a Yoshi trying to save himself and then, (laughs) like, misses by just a a hair's breadth, right? Right. And, And so, yeah, right. And so 15 years before that, 10 years before that, David Sudnow looked at Breakout and and had no interest in experimentation, like mm-hmm. none. I mean, interesting experimentation to figure out, like, how do you play the perfect game? Mm-hmm. But not like this might be fun to do a little bit. This might be fun to to play around with to get good at. It was like, all right, well, I guess I'm dedicating my all of my time to figure out how to clear this board like mm-hmm. as, as quickly as possible, which is, you know, in video games, I think we have to think through, like, what are our implicit goals, mm-hmm. right? And when we start theorizing about games, that's got to be a part of it, right? Like, are you playing this because you want to uh, dominate the machine, which is, like, how some people describe it? Do you want to self-improve yourself, which is the whole discourse around, say, like, Soulsborne games, right? Or, like, mm-hmm. before that Ninja Gaiden, right? The idea that these games are very difficult, and through self-discipline, self-transformation, you can overcome that. Uh, do you want to have a social experience, right? You know, I'm thinking about the Errant Signal video from maybe a couple of years ago now about Fortnite and that like the the act of playing Fortnite really has very little to do with the Battle Royale part. You mm-hmm. know, it, it's about all these other things happening. And so, you know, the the gaming situation, for lack of a better term, is always inside of some implicit goals that you have as a player. Uh, that we can be like forthcoming about and talk about, or we can print, pretend aren't there and like run ourselves into some like analytical issues. And it, it's just really funny to me that like his implicit goal here is real. As, as far as my experience has been with games and the people who are enculturating into games, literally 20 years after this is written, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
those implicit goals are very far away from one another. He's off model for the gaming situation that I've grown up in in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that's fascinating. You know, he treats it like learning to play piano. It, not even that. He treats it as if it's like, I'm going to sit down and I will learn to play Bach perfectly. Right, right. He treats it like a riddle is how I was like, thinking. Yes, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's like he he has been presented with a riddle and he can intuit what the solution to the riddle is. And now his challenge is enacting the solution that he has already intuited. Right, right, right. It's like it's like he knows the answer to the riddle, but he can't get the words out right. And that's what ends up kind of driving him a little bug nuts. He's got to get the words out right. But that no, that is exactly that is a great way of putting it, because that's exactly how he does it, which is just fascinating. Right. That's like that's not how I play video games. Mm-hmm. Um, like <laughs> I'm I, I I I don't think I could ever play more than 30 minutes of breakout in my entire life. Like. <laughs> Breakout's fine, but like w- there's nothing there for me other than the thing that he finds so compelling, which does nothing for me, which is like mastery and dominance over this thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's just not something I'm interested in as a as a player. Um, I I could not care less about like performing well at the game, which is why I've never been very good and never had the uh, drive to like get good at a fighting game or something like that. Like I enjoy playing Injustice 2 because I like playing through the story mode, (laughs) you know, Um, but so like this kind this kind of gameplay and this like mode of thought is just really far away from me, which is why it's kind of fun to read about, too. Mm hmm. Uh, But the other interesting thing that happens in this chapter is he starts realizing uh, the full extent of the Atari console as a disciplinary apparatus, Uh, just quoting from page 49 here. So as he starts playing, uh, the thing he is fascinated to discover uh, is that as he as he plays, he gets better. Uh, Quote. If you engage a human body through eyes and fingers in a precisely scripted interaction with various sorts of computer-generated events, what seem like complex skills are rapidly acquired by regular repetition. Uh, and he you know, goes so far as to say that in some sense the Atari machine is, quote, programming you. Uh, that there is uh, something... so. There's kind of uh, two things going on here. One is that I think this is actually a fairly, you know, canny assessment of how video games work. Um, Yeah. Right. How computers work in in general. Um, But I think also for him, uh, because there is a kind of narrative here that's being spun uh, and spoilers, unfortunately, we'll get there. But he's setting himself up for disappointment because kind of uh, one of the conclusions he comes from comes to from this uh, moment of understanding is like, oh, If I play Breakout enough, eventually the machine will program me into being the optimal player who can do the thing that I want to do. He kind of seats himself over to this weird techno determinism. uh, And the computer will simply lift me by my bootstraps. Yes. Right. (laughs) Right. He's like, if this is a machine and it is programmed in a certain way, it's hard coded and it's going to do these things. All I have to do is kind of like uh, press myself up against it enough until I like firmly sink into the jello mold and then it'll be great. Everything will be exactly what I want it to be. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But that turns out not to be the case. I didn't know if there was anything else you wanted to talk about in this chapter, though. No, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. As far as I know. Um, uh, I I will say maybe in a general sense, if you're looking at like, what's the one chapter that contains a lot of the argumentation of the book? mm -hmm. Probably that chapter, right? Yeah, I would say so. This is also the one because he kind of gets philosophical near the end and... um, 
thinks about how like, oh, this kind of thing where you're just doing these like little rote mechanical movements while looking at a screen and it's kind of entraining you to uh, do certain things, to have certain uh, behaviors or whatever, uh, at scale, this could have some consequences. Uh, right. He doesn't think specifically about them, um, but he does like suggest like, oh, there there are ways in which you can ma- manipulate people here, right? Uh, uh, people who are sort of dedicated to play uh, will continue to play, uh, and he, this is another quote, uh, quite independent of our conscious selves. Um, right. so in a weird way, um, this is something we'll continue to revisit, I think, uh, in a couple of other points, he's kind of walked backward into the flow argument, but, but kind of an, a negative assessment of it. Yeah. I, there are uh, lots of places throughout this whole book where he is, he is getting quite close to flow, but then not making the arguments that flow as a concept does, which I think is actually like, you could take this book and you could create a competing theory with flow that comports itself to the ideas that flow espouses but does not have all of the like uh things we don't like about flow (laughs) built into it right yeah like because this is ultimately as you said almost techno deterministic argument right right once you comport yourself to the desires of the machine enough it'll do whatever it wants to with you um and you know in in between my like if I'm given two options, two flavors of ice cream, one of which says that when you build machines, they make you do things. And the other, which says, if I can think, I can think my way out of the drudgery of the factory any day I want to, I'll choose the machine, right? Like I would rather, <laughs> I would rather it have the, uh, the machines make me do what, what I don't want to do, uh, thing than like the idea that that stuff could be happened to you, happening to you. And it's your like mindset you need to change about yourself. Right. Um, I would rather be honest about what the machine is doing. But Mm -hmm. yeah, that's I think that's uh, it. You want to talk about chapter five? Yeah. Chapter five is strategy. Um, And so uh, he he finds out that no matter well, not really no matter how much he plays because he plays quite a bit, but he he comes to understand uh, that the kind of progression of his skill level or kind of his progression toward this idealized game that he has in his head, uh, that is not, in fact, determinate. Like it doesn't keep happening uh he keeps like he he has uneven times uh and so uh this chapter is all about the maybe two dozen different ways different strategies he comes up with with like how to launch the ball where do you hit the ball back how do you like you know keep your time how do you look at the screen like just any possible thing that you could think of that would be like in the room with you or like that you would have at your disposal while playing this atari uh he has in some way like tried to make a part of a strategy or like some variable within like how the game starts and so on and so forth. Um, And despite all of his strategizing, it just doesn't work. Nope. (laughs) Next chapter. So he does what that's the whole chapter. (laughs) Yep. So he does what any reasonable person would do, uh, which is that he rings up the people at Atari arranges a personal visit and then goes to Atari HQ uh, on the way. You know, he passes through kind of like the, the beginnings of Silicon Valley and past like a Lockheed Martin facility. And he thinks about the the strange intertwining of um, like computer industry and defense contracting that's going on. And he's like, hmm, I wonder how much uh, influence that had on the development of Missile Command. Uh, so I... <laughs> One of those moments where it's like, damn, we've read all we've read like four books about that thing already. Right. Right. <laughs> and David Sudden now just like drove by it and had it as a passing thought on an afternoon. <laughs> um, 
And uh, then this is possibly my favorite chapter of the book because he gets to Atari HQ and he meets with the programmers. And yeah. what he asks them for is essentially like uh, tips and tricks. Yeah. Well, what's really is so he meets with the, the people who are involved in the production twice. And I don't remember which one it is. Is this the time where he asks them a question and they tell him to read the manual and he says, I've never read the manual? I think so. Maybe it's the second. Maybe it's the second It might second be the time. second. I can't remember. But like there's a conversation that he has with someone where they're like, yeah, we say that in the manual. And he goes, oh, my God, I never read the manual. <laughs> <laughs> I've just dedicated hundreds of hours of my life to this this game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he talks to them and they like they actually give him tips and tricks. Yeah. But it's like he treats it like he goes to Atari HQ and it's like he called like the Nintendo helpline in 1993. Like that's how he treats it. Yeah, basically. Uh, and and a big chunk of what happens here, too, is like, uh, you know, he, he says this is from some page 69 uh, of, uh, of my book. Um, says. The programmer who did Breakout was now with another company, and I was I was to later learn that he in turn adapted it from a still earlier version. The original video game Pong developer developed by the founder of Atari was part of a so-called de- uh, dedicated computer, a piece of equipment with a built-in program to do just that game like arcade machines. Apparently, one version of this Pong for home use did include several built-in options, among of which was the first Breakout, later changed to its present form. How nice to have been chosen to have chosen one of the original video game motifs. Was Breakout the Eisenstein of the new genre, Charlie Parker of video jazz, well-tempered clavier of the tube? So there uh, were these several versions, several hands involved down the line. Mind you, this all came to four later. Right now, I was happy simply to be near the source of any relevant information, no matter who knew most about what version. My home unit was in the trunk of the car with a hookup, all ready to plug into the TV of the motel, where I was to hang out for a while since I'd gotten to make the visit. Waiting for my appointment, I was about to ask the secretary if she knew how to play the game well. Tell me, lady, <laughs> how fast can it be done? Yeah. <laughs> it's just wild to me. Like, the, the whole thing here. But also the idea that he, like, works through this production history. And, like, that's the first piece. And he keeps giving us more and more. But, crucially, he's always working us back to the arcade. And eventually mm-hmm. we get to that in the book, right? In chapter, mm-hmm. I think, eight. Um, but you know, he eventually is like, wait, holy shit, this comes from an arcade. Uh It might be too hard. (laughs) (laughs) That could be the problem I'm having here. But yeah, he, he does all that kind of stuff. And, but then he says this at the end, unless you have stuff to talk about in the middle, you know, the programmer tells him all this kind of stuff about like, uh, where on the little bar that bounces the ball that you control with the paddle, where on that will produce what kind of, um, response based on the square that you have broken most recently you know so he actually gets some information about it although how much of that is helpful to actually playing the game probably zero mm-hmm. <laughs> he says this on page 81 forget the computer breakout was a grid an object with known fixed properties no more an opponent than my piano or a layout of city streets or a hopscotch pattern on the sidewalk uh there's be there be a game in pitting a so uh, what, what's going on here? Th- what I have in this book is there's be a game in pitting yourself against another, but the computer didn't play against you. Not once you'd memorized enough of its ways to know how to correctly use the facilities. Atari provided a challenging piece of machinery, an instrument, a modern moving pencil and paper. Mm-hmm. Right. So like at the end of this chapter, he has moved from I'm playing against this computer to 
I just need to master the rules and regulations. Mm-hmm. I just need to be a really good referee, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. Uh, I think the only thing I have to add is that uh, the bit where they tell him to read the manual, uh, I think it has something like the they tell him to read the manual because the manual mentions that on the uh, paddle that you have in Breakout, uh, it is not visible, right? It's not in any way flagged to you as the player, uh, but it is like subdivided into little sections that will angle the ball differently depending on where it lands during a hit. Um, and so it actually, I think maybe it gives a diagram or something in the manual. So he had never looked at this. Uh, and then he goes back and he reads the manual and he's like, oh, holy hell, like this is incredible, but I only know this now and I can only understand this now because I've played so much of the game. Uh, and he realizes that uh, games are very interesting because uh, there is information that games will give you that seems absolutely meaningless until you arrive in the gaming context where it gets activated. Uh, mm -hmm. which is a thing that I think if you play any video games is a thing you probably experience that all the time, right? For me, this is like always the Bethesda loading screen kind of thing, uh, like in Fallout 4, where it's like, you know, you like I'm going outside time to look at this loading screen. And it just says you can use any unowned piece of furniture to wait for up to 24 hours. <laughs> like these just very like, <laughs> you know, solid like facts about the game world that make no sense in kind of like a grammatical way, right? Like right. all of all of the references there are to things interior to the game that unless you already know kind of like what does it mean for furniture to be owned? How do I use it? Uh, why would I want to wait? What does waiting mean? Like none of if you don't have any of that, that sentence just does not make any sense. Right. Sometimes you gotta know. Mm-hmm. Uh, chapter seven then is practice. Wait, are we talking about practice? Yeah. Okay, we're talking about practice, not pranksis. Okay. Uh, this is a book about a man who traps himself into a flow state, and it's a nightmare. <laughs> that's when that's what I get out of this chapter because this is uh him basically training to uh beat breakout. He compares himself to a junkie, as a matter of fact. Uh. He this is another quote that I have from him. This is pretty long, but I like it. The whole possibility of breakout and all the other games depends upon this capacity we have to transcend the limited equipment the computer makes available. And when the programmer set up the angles as he did, it was his own body's natural inclination to make this necessary adaptation that provided the background required for such an artificial arrangement to work. Without the natural organic inventiveness of our bodies in this context, there'd be no video games, and in the final analysis, the true marvel of these objects resides in the ways we can instantly adapt ourselves to the altogether meager resources they provide. So, context there. Uh, he is talking about how, like, he, he arrives at this thought, which is basically like, oh, one of the reasons Breakout as a game works is that you can basically bet that anyone who sits down with this thing has the experience of, like, knocking a ball back and forth, or at least, like, throwing it at a wall and having it bounce back. 
And so when you start playing Breakout, you are dealing with an extremely thin representation of uh, something that is very simple in, in the real material world, uh, but with, but which is actually extremely complex in a material and physical sense. Uh, and, you know, you, you know, give a, a cat a, a, a little toy and it can bat it around for hours. People are very similar in that, like, you give us a little thing, we can bounce that ball off the brick wall, whatever. Uh, and we bring that kind of uh, embodied experience or, or kind of also the uh, the expectations that come from that experience to bear with us when we go against the very thin representation of the video game. Um, but then he is sort of getting at this idea that it is only because we have this uh, uh, kind of experience of pushing the thing off the edge of the table or like throwing the ball at the wall and then like throwing it at a different angle and seeing how fast it comes back or what angle it goes off in the other direction on uh, that we then uh, in the representation of the game start doing similar experiments and sort of like uh, matching what uh, we think is going to happen uh, to what is actually happening in the game. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so in that way, uh, he says that the, the apparatus of the game becomes this kind of extension of the body, right? It becomes the hand, uh, you know, metaphorically speaking, that you're using to push or manipulate uh, the object around. Yeah, I think this is probably the chapter, because of all that stuff you were talking about, I think this is the chapter that people who really like this book mm -hmm. are all about. Mm -hmm. Because it is such a painfully slow <laughs> elaboration of that. I mean, I think this chapter is almost unbearable to read. Mm -hmm. uh, like I can, I can read it and intellectually. I know that like what is happening on this page is really smart and is uh, useful and provides a really great document of this kind of experience. Uh, I also think it is just absolutely mind destroying to read through. <laughs> uh, just, just because like, Yep, this is like this is the process of doing anything. Mm -hmm. The process of doing anything is like creating a set of parameters and then following those parameters. And then there there are just these lines after lines of him being like and and why does it work this way? Why does it not work that? Why does it go left when I want it to go right? I have to test it. I begin to test it by determining where on the little bar the ball should hit to go let you know what I mean? And like mm -hmm. it just goes on and on and on and on like that, which is again fascinating as a document. Um, and if you're really into the phenomenology of play, this is a gold mine, right? This is like someone who was working through the originary moments of video games and understanding wh where does the human comportment to gameplay come from, mm -hmm. you know, like what, what does that look like in some of its earliest iterations? Uh, you know, it's like looking at, uh, you know, the cave paintings on the wall <laughs> in some way. Right. Uh, and yet I don't, I, you know, I don't look at the cave paintings on the wall and think, wow, I, I need to know more about that. I need to know more about these so-called bulls running around and what they're up to. Mm -hmm. I don't care about that. I, I take that back. I care about the cave paintings. But uh, the description of gameplay here, I just find, like, so belabored. And it's belabored on purpose, but mm -hmm. uh, this this is not where I find the most interesting, like, thought in the book. Yeah. Uh, if you have nothing to say, Chapter 8 has coin, because that's the title. Uh, this is the one where he realizes uh, that this is an arcade game. And his habit of, like, whipping over and hitting the reset button every time he, like, goes off track. Because, you know, he, he like, I, he's a little unclear on this sometimes. Uh, 
but it seems like in at least some instances, he's like hitting the reset button the second he loses his first ball, even though the yeah. game, I think, gives you three or five or something like that. Right. So you have multiple chances per play session. But the second he loses his first ball, he's hitting the reset button. Yeah, because he wants to play a perfect game. Yeah. And so he realizes uh, all of a sudden, oh, this was a thing that was programmed for arcades. And in an arcade, I would never do that because I would be putting coins into this machine and I would want to get as much out of every coin as I possibly could. And so my strategy would not be to immediately play the perfect game. It would be to prolong the amount of time that I have with the credits that I've, uh, uh, you know, inserted into the game or whatever. Uh, it would be to prolong that time and to do as much as I could uh, in that time that I could then potentially like learn lessons from and take forward into my next credited session. Um, so, wow. <laughs> yeah, I have actually, it, it, weirdly enough, this is a fairly long chapter and that's about as far as it gets on it, right? Yeah. Where he's just like, ah, it's interesting that it costs money to do this. <laughs> uh, and you wouldn't just quit. You would keep doing it. But I, what, what I find so awesome about this chapter is he, like you were talking about earlier, basically independently invents flow, not the chick sec version necessarily, but certainly the Genova Chin mm-hmm. video game version, you know, the, the version that is maybe a little bit more uh, impactful within the world of game design more explicitly that, you know, whatever seven page document that, that Genova Chin produced uh, around their master's degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's here. It's on 135. It began to dawn on me. The central skills of these games arise out of lucratively, lucratively programmed caring. Competence is possible only when action is motivated in those ways the game itself motivates. And the game motivates action in ways proven to be the most profitable in a rapid coin turnover scheme. That makes the skills inseparable from the profitably arranged enticements that bring them into being. It's not that you have to care in order to get good, but rather that you have to be kept caring. You've got to be kept in the right state so you'll get to some places a little bit better all the time, so that the goal remains alive by always moving just ahead, out of reach, and you keep wanting to attain it without having to spend a fortune. You don't have to figure out how to do that. You can't. The way to be kept caring is most delicately built right into the program, so long as you don't mess with your freedoms, don't get hooked on the reset buttons, or reckless with your quarters. Do that, and it gets harder to be kept caring. Mm-hmm. He literally says, I mean, what what is happening here is he is saying, oh shit, there's an unbroken line between the design of a video game to keep challenge in front of you and its desire to keep you playing it by putting money into it. Mm-hmm. Oh, and and I'll never get rid of that. Like, it, you know, in terms of it lodged in my head eternally, and this is after reading Chicksack Mihai's book on flow and reading, good Lord, a huge amount of this stuff, both for my, my book and for some upcoming projects that I'm doing, is that so much of the ideas about good game design, period, full stop, good game design is downstream from the economic condition that games emerge into in their uh, first commercial form. Mm-hmm. And now the the newer economic condition that they are in, which is uh, online connectivity in games as a service. Mm-hmm. And it is really difficult for me. You know, look, the, the book radicalized me, right? But it's, it is hard to 
think about these things without thinking about addiction by design. Yep. <laughs> right. Like it's impossible to think of, you know, and especially now that I've said this a few times, but time on device is a thing that major publishers and developers measure. Mm hmm. You know, it literally, how long are you there? That matters just as much as what you do and how you do it and what your experience is. How long are you there? Mm-hmm. Uh, and David Sun now gets there. <laughs> he gets there in 82 or 83 <laughs> uh, independently by playing Breakout. He's like, wait a minute. They just want me to play this damn game all the time. <laughs> and that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yep. I thought that was great. Yeah, that's that chapter. Um, this chapter also ends like... I it really goes off the rails, in my opinion, the end of this chapter, because this is when he goes to New York and he wanders around Times Square, which is kind of interesting because it's like, you know, pre Disneyfication Times Square. And so there's like all sorts of arcades and stuff there. And he's sort of thinking about uh, uh, like the politics of all that, not really thinking of the politics, but like that's, the right. you know, the the. Uh, he, the social situation, right, the social that. situation, right? Uh, the the thing that he notices is that there's like dudes coming down from Wall Street, right? Investment bankers in their in their suits uh, and they're <laughs> side by side with uh, and this is specifically what he notes, right? Side by side with these black youth who are also at the arcades. You're 65 percent of the way to a Bruce Springsteen song right now. <laughs> 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 why haven't why haven't we gotten the Bruce Springsteen Atari in Times Square uh, song? Well, the punk hoods were hanging out with Manhattan boys. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so he like sees that and he's like, wow, this is uh, it's not like bringing people together in like the fully positive sense. But he's noticing like, oh, this is interesting, right? This is a thing that draws people in. Uh, kind of across uh, socioeconomic and like racial boundaries, right? There is something here that is like hooking into people uh, in various places uh, enough that they just like come and stand beside each other and there's just like nothing to be said about it, right? It's unremarkable to them. Um, and then he like gets into this really bizarre reverie where he's imagining, did you follow this at all? He's like imagining like a giant version of Breakout played on like light bulbs or something. I'm just going to be honest with you. Basically from the end of this chapter through the end of the book, I don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so no, it's my it, answer is no, it's really odd. Uh, uh, so then in chapter nine, I lights, I have a slightly better understanding of what's going on here because this is when he, uh, you know, relative to the, the breakthrough he had in the previous chapter, um, this is when he stops trying to get the perfect game. Like he gives that up as a goal. And instead he starts uh, trying to kind of track how many different types of patterns he can come up with uh, in terms of like knocking the ball around the screen. Right. If, mm -hmm. if that ball were to make uh, a line each time he knocked it around. Uh, how long could he keep it up and how many kind of different, uh, uh, you know, polygonal patterns could he make each time? And so uh, the the big moment in this chapter is that he's doing that and he has been doing that. And then at, at, at a certain point, he's actually like using uh, tape and like marker or something to like trace the patterns he's making on the screen. Um, at a certain point, uh, he's doing this and he realizes uh, that the screen is almost cleared and then he and he he wasn't even trying for it. 
right? That's that's the thing that shocks mm-hmm. him is that he wasn't even trying to clear the screen. And yet here he is almost to the victory state. And then he just goes ahead and he like clears the screen. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Then chapter 10, Remembrance. Well, I, I guess the last thing, right, let me say one <laughs> thing about chapter nine is like, it worked. Mm-hmm. Like he comported himself to a machine. Yeah. He's you got some little machinic beanie, you know, being here. He's doing it. <laughs> machinic beanies. He's got his little machinic beanie on. Mm-hmm. It turned him into a robot. <laughs> <laughs> Lana Wachowski's there, yeah. you know? <laughs> uh, and then chapter 10 happens. Remembrance. Uh, he takes his son to New York and, uh, he reflects on his childhood, uh, in particular, like walking to and from like the movie theater, uh, and like really being into baseball and his son is into baseball. It's like over the summer. Uh, and he ends up thinking about how much like televised sports have changed what the experience of baseball is because he has all these very distinct childhood memories, of, um, you know, like what was a nighttime baseball game relative to a game that took place during the day? And, and like, how did those feel different? How do they look different? So on and so forth. And then he thinks about how if you are watching a ball game on television in, in 1981 or whatever, uh, unless the camera pans up over the top of the stadium, uh, it is so well lit that you cannot tell if it's a, uh, a night game. Uh, and he ends up thinking about like, what is the future that his son has to, uh, look forward to with kind of all these computers everywhere? Because there's a bit where, um, his son wants to join like a, a little league or something. And they don't know, I guess they're staying in New York all summer, uh, and they don't know where they would be. And so he has to look through the yellow pages and his son is like, why don't you just put it on the computer? So his son, you know, like, (laughs) invents a like internet search by just looking at the phone book and being like, why isn't that on the computer already? Why can't we just type in little league and find out where David Sudnow's son was surge, whatever his name is. The, the alphabet guy, the Google guy, you know what I'm saying? Okay. You get it. Uh, So you see the primary search for me is (laughs) a search from system of a down. So, uh, I, I who makes, uh, who makes coffee now? Yeah, he does. Yeah, uh-huh. he's got the old thing. He almost got me. I watched that ad, that little video about like how to make uh, Armenian coffee. Uh-huh. And I was like, maybe I need to make Armenian coffee every day. <laughs> <laughs> and it ends with, a, they. ultimately it doesn't work out. They send this kid to baseball camp. Mm-hmm. And the kid says, when I'm at baseball camp, can I have an extra $10 a week? And he says, what do you need that for? And it says, they've got video games there. <laughs> so I just I just did a little Google here. Do you know how much $10 in 1981 is worth today? Uh, How much? $33. Jesus. And 10 cents, actually, if you want to get technical. The, the idea that a child would ask me for, uh, for $33 a week to play video games. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> Go on, get get a paperback novel, spend your dime, get a Philip K. Dick book. I mean, $33 wouldn't even get a kid a game these days, unless they were... It wouldn't get half pre- a game. Yeah, I was going to say, perusing the Steam sale. That's right. <laughs> Go to baseball camp away on the Steam summer sale, kid. 
But $33, but $33 a week, you're at baseball camp for eight weeks minimum. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're buying a PS5, buddy. <laughs> you're having a good time. Anyway. Yeah, uh, we were talking about Bruce Springsteen earlier. Basically, the last uh, the last chapter is My Hometown by Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't have to read it. You can just listen to that song. Um, and he did it, I guess. He became good at Breakout. Yeah, it all worked out for him. Yeah, he he did a uh, he did a Pilgrim's Progress in the micro world. I do kind of wish that there had been maybe like a follow up chapter that he wrote later because I kind of want to know like, uh, how how did like presumably like going forward in his life, Sudnow was not this fixated on Breakout. So how did that fall out of his life? Like, was it a gradual thing? Like, was there a point actually past the ending of this book where he was like, "All right, I'm done. I figured it all out." Like. You know, he goes on to develop the Sudnow method for teaching piano. So apparently he had, you know, other designs in his life. Uh, But, you know, we don't get that. Just kind of ends thinking about his son. Uh, Well, I mean, maybe he left it, you know, back in uh, on the West Coast. You know, (laughs) yeah, like maybe he left the machine over there. Maybe he did. He doesn't really talk about uh, uh, the Atari at all in the final chapter. So. Yeah, it's true. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Someone tell us. Well, what did you think about the book? Um, I thought it was pretty good. I I said everything that I said at the beginning of this episode yesterday is still true, which is I think that there is some really great stuff here. And I also just think that there are some things that I I mean, I, I'm not unhappy that I read them, but I was reading them and I'm like, come on, am I really reading this? And I was. I think it'd be fun to teach the book alongside like a more contemporary game. Mm. So like, you know, you like spend a couple of days playing breakout, trying to get good at it, have like a little in game or a little in class tournament, something like that, mm-hmm. you know, and then you and you read the book alongside that and then you have them play a different game and then like David Sudnow themselves, mm. you know, it's mm-hmm. so like play MLB the show. <laughs> 2019 (laughs) right about their baseball team or whatever right (laughs) you know well i'm thinking about that i'm I'm teaching a seminar in game studies in the fall like it's it's on the books people are registering for it this very moment and so i'm thinking about how am i going to do that you know and there's the survey method there's the one single game method which i'm leaning toward and then there's like other stuff we could do Mm-hmm. Uh, like around game culture specifically, like, is there a game we could play and play so much that we like developed an in-game culture of it hmm. or like an in-class, not in-game, but in-class, like what would we do with it then? Mm-hmm. So anyway, thinking about it, more updates on that soon. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash ranged touch to support us for $3 a month. And if you do that, you can get our notes for these um, at $5 a month. You get some bonus podcasts and things like that. I would encourage you, and and more money than that, you get even more stuff. I would encourage you to check out what we're up to on our other shows, like uh, Just King Things, where we're reading through the works of Stephen King in publication order. We are about to do Dolores Claiborne, Mm -hmm. I think an underread Stephen King novel, and tragically so. Yeah. A little preview. I think that book rocks. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's good, mm-hmm. but we'll talk about that on that episode. Uh, and you can check out too much future, our show where we, um, play through the fallout games, to talk about them. We're still in fallout four and we'll be finishing that as we get into the summer. And we've got a secret show that'll be coming out in just a couple months. It's going to be a really big deal. It's going to be fun. We're going to be reading a classic work of literature 
so keep an eye out for that, an ear out for that when we go. Patreon.com slash range to touch. And you can also go to youtube.com slash range to touch to see the other stuff that we are up to there. All of that is down in the description below. Hit like on this, hit subscribe on this, leave us a five-star review, and we might read it on the show. While I'm pulling that up, uh, Michael, what are we doing next month? Well, next month, I believe, I was given to believe, no, wait, no, next month isn't the summer, isn't it? No, no, it's not. It's not yet. That's going to be the month after. Oh, okay. That'll be the month after. So what are we doing next month? We don't know what we're doing. (laughs) Uh, Our big theme has not yet come around, and so I will not reveal it. Uh, Yeah, no, next month, we don't know what we're going to be doing. That's right. We don't know. I know, but you don't know. Uh, But uh, go to range touch. uh, No. Well, you can go to rangetouch.com, I guess, but to, uh, twitter.com slash rangetouch in order to find out about that. I got a, we, we got a format breaking radical change in the show. Not a permanent one, but one at least for one month. It's going to be a big deal. If you're on the Discord, you can speculate about it. But after that, we're going to be doing the thing you are alluding to this summer, which is the Summer of Agency. That's right. It's going to be the summer of agency. We're going to read a bunch of books about agency. <laughs> it, it, th- this word that haunts us, uh-huh. which I don't even believe in. <laughs> we're doing the summer of agency. And uh, we're going to read a bunch of books about that. And a few of those have come out recently. There are a few that are uh, a little bit more historical in nature. We're probably going to be reading four. So if you have a book about agency in games, the notion of agency, the concept of it, or a book about agency outside of games you think might be helpful for game studies people to read, you can tweet it at us, at Range Touch, or you can tell us about it on our Discord. Because we, we've, we've got a rough list, but we don't have, we're not solidified. That'll come out next month. We'll have our solidified list. And that will, of course, be May, June, July, August, maybe September. <laughs> Summer apparently is half of the year. Yes. <laughs> Well, with the way things are going. Uh, whoa, whoa, getting political over here. Politi- uh, uh, climatologist Michael. <laughs> climatologist Michael is here to tell you about uh, uh, the Antarctic melt, and it ain't good. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and so that, that's it. That's what we have to look forward to. Yeah, like, ending the show there. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>